Hey guys, I hope you're doing great today and I can't wait to bring you the show. But before I do, I just wanna make a quick request. If you're listening to the show and you're getting good value and you're enjoying the content and you feel that it's valuable, if you could just take a second and go and give me a rating and review in whatever platform you listen, whether it be Apple or Google or uh, Spotify, whatever it is, just go and give me a rating and review, that would be very appreciated. All right guys, let's dive in. I love it. I think it's very smart. I think a lot of metro markets are extremely competitive. The cost of doing deals, like the cost per deal is just much higher. And so when you're starting out, and I know you're not necessarily just starting out, Nick, but when you're, but if a person is just starting out, I always think they should go to secondary markets first. I think it's just absolutely the way to go. There's no question about it. You're listening to the Just Start Real Estate Podcast. If you're serious about your real estate investing business and need real answers, you are in the right place. And now, your host, Mike Simmons. All right, thank you for joining me on the show today. I appreciate it. I've got another great Q&A replay for you. Uh, these are, I think, really valuable. And if I can judge it all by the downloads and what you are, how you are responding to them uh, in terms of you know, how often they're being downloaded and how popular they seem to be that way. It appears that you guys agree and this is a valuable, valuable episode for you. So I'm excited about that. I'm glad because I think that there's a lot here. And when people ask questions, it's like that fly on the wall syndrome. You don't know what you don't know. And sometimes people ask questions that you never even thought to ask. And that's why I believe that these episodes that I do on Thursdays where I replay my Wednesday live Q&A that I do on Facebook, by the way, that is for free on Wednesdays. You can log into my uh, Facebook page, Just Start Real Estate on Facebook. Log in there on Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific, and you can ask me all the questions you want for free. I'm just there as a resource for you uh, for a half an hour to 45 minutes. Every single Wednesday, you're free to log on and ask questions. But if you're not able to, able to make it, I do the replay here so you can just be a fly on the wall and you can hear what people are asking, what I'm saying, and hopefully getting some really good information. Uh, this episode was, was no different. We talked about uh, doing deals in smaller markets, specifically markets that are adjacent to or border large metros. Does it make sense to do that? I talked a little bit about what it cost me to get a contract in my marketing efforts. Uh, I went into great detail about my dispositions process and also so I was asked the question, what's the biggest mistake that I have made in real estate? And I, I went through that and tried to help people uh, not make the same mistake. So lots of good stuff, other questions too. So this was a really, really fun one. Hope you guys enjoy it. Uh, I give you my latest Wednesday Q&A replay. All right, guys, we're live. We're back. Thanks for joining me again on another Q&A. I appreciate it. Uh, we are here every Wednesday at 7 o'clock Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Pacific, uh, to answer all of your real estate questions. Hopefully, you guys are logging on and utilizing this as a resource. Uh, I have built a seven-figure real estate business, and I've mentored and coached hundreds of people over the years and helped them do the exact same thing. So uh, I'm doing this to, to really just to help. It, there's no you know there's no cost to you to log on, and I'm happy to answer any questions you have. We can go back and forth. If you're not able to log on, 
on live for whatever reason you can always send me questions too we get these throughout the week you can dm me uh you can send me an email at mike at juststartrealestate.com and i'll get those and i'll answer your questions on these lives so at least you can tune in after the fact or listen to the replay on my podcast of the same name just start real estate and you can get uh, you can get your answers you can still ask me questions that way uh if you want to work with me this year and really take your business to the next level i mean not just get a question here or there but have the blueprint laid out for you how do i build a six-figure a seven-figure and beyond real estate business that doesn't require you to work 18 hours a day and just run yourself crazy how do you build a business that's predictable reliable sustainable getting leads every day and build a team out that helps you work those leads buy and sell properties renovate properties all while you're not in the business and the day-to-day if you want that if you want to learn how to do that then i have the solution for you i created a program called the seven figure investor and if you go to seven figure investor that's the word seven not the number the word seven spelled out seven figure investor if you go there you can absolutely check out what i have to offer i've made it extremely affordable anybody can really take advantage of this and it's really designed for for people who have already done a few deals maybe you've done one or two deals or maybe you've done a couple dozen deals and you don't know how to take it to the next level because every time you ramp up a little bit it just means you work harder and that's not the way it's supposed to be and i want to help you get out of that rat race and that's who it's designed for now if you just rolled out of bed yesterday and you decided maybe you might want to do this real estate thing but you don't know anything about it this might be a little bit beyond where you are but that's okay if you want to jump in and check it out you certainly can because it'll be relevant for you down the road but it's it's specifically designed for investors who've already done a few deals they sort of get the basics and they need to know how to ramp it up go to sevenfigureinvestor.com and you can check it out as you're listening to this right now no matter when you're listening to it this is going live after my first the first round or the first session of my program got launched so if you're listening to this uh probably there's one right now that's running it's in session and we're in the middle of it but you can still go there and sign up and you'll be ready for the next one the next one is going to be in the spring uh, a little later in the spring and you'll be ready to go when we launch that one and every time we do one and go to the next one we're tweaking it we're making it better so i expect the second one to be better than the first one and the third one to be better than the second and we're just going to keep getting better and better as we go but don't wait jump in now because you know i've said this a million times the best time to start anything was 10 years ago the second best time is right now so don't wait there's no reason to wait okay let's dive into the questions for today uh like i said we get these sent to us throughout the week if you're logging on now live and you have questions put them in the chat and we will get them answered for you i will give them priority over the questions that i have prepared here for you guys or that i've gotten throughout the week okay first question I know you have been looking into investing in short-term rentals. They're talking to me because I have mentioned that I'm going to be starting to buy short-term rentals. I'm looking for one myself somewhere in the Great Lakes area, close to one of the lakes and within three hours from a big city like Chicago or Detroit. What are you finding the seasonal drop-off rates are? Do you think the strategy will work in northern vacation areas? So 
the drop-off rates differ from area to area, right? So something near Chicago, the drop-off rate might be a little different than something on the Michigan side. Um, so it's hard to say. There's, I don't think there's a drop-off rate. But I can tell you when it comes to seasonal um, like vacation destination type locations in Michigan and Chicago, the best months are always going to be June, July, August, and then maybe a little bit into September. So you've got like a maybe four at maximum five month window where bookings are pretty good and they're always going to be the best june july and august like those are the best and so you have three months of like extremely high rates packed all the time totally packed right but then you have to be prepared for november december january february march right those are going to be really really low so it's like feast or famine so when you do that kind of investing you can't take all the profits out in the summer because there's going to be tons of profits probably right it's rented and it's extremely high rates you can't take all that money out because you'll probably be working in a deficit a little bit in the winter time and and so what i'm finding like i said i was looking on the west coast of michigan and looking at a house in particular and i actually passed on it because speaking to some of the other folks who have airbnb rentals in that area and by the way if you're looking at doing something that's seasonal or something in a vacation spot, I would absolutely like talk to the other Airbnb uh, owners, like the other people who are running Airbnb businesses and ask them what their experience is. I mean, you can always use things like AirDNA and stuff like that to find out what people are charging and what you can expect for for rates and things like that. But I would talk to the people who are actually doing it. And when I did that, I just wasn't as comfortable as I wanted to be with what I could charge and how long I could charge it and what happens in the wintertime. So I showed up in the wintertime. I think it was um, late January when I went there and the guy said, it's just a ghost town. Like nobody's there. Nobody's renting. And it's just, you know, you just sort of try to get by for four or five months. And when I plug that into my calculator, it just didn't make sense, right? So I think when it comes to seasonal rentals in the northern states, you have to be careful and you have to make sure that you're buying right. Look at stuff like taxes and insurance. Just make sure you know your numbers. So if you have a few months that are really, really lean, that you know for sure the months that are booming are going to more than make up for that, right? Because this isn't supposed to be a break-even business and it's not supposed to be as good as a long-term rental. Because if it's only as good as a long-term rental, just do a long-term rental. Don't even do do short-term. The reason you do short-term rentals is because generally it brings much higher um, returns than a, a long-term rental. And so you just have to look for that, run your numbers and trust your numbers. And, you know, I, I interviewed someone on my podcast the other day and he talked about a, a, your buy box, right? A buy box is basically what are the parameters? What are the numbers that you're looking for? What What is a perfect investment for you? And those are the types of properties that you go after. So figure out what what your parameters are with a short-term rental, what, how many, like, what is your vacancy rate that you can, that you can tolerate? What do you want the rates to be? What are you trying to make from it? Are you just trying to make a couple hundred bucks a month or do you need to make two or $3,000 a month, right? That's a, there's a huge difference in what you're going to buy and where you're going to buy. If that is, is what's happening with you. If you need to make two or $3,000 on all your short-term rentals, you might not want to do something that's seasonal where you're, we may not net that at the end of the day. So just figure out what your goals are, figure out what your buy box is, and then run your numbers and trust them. And if it doesn't make sense, move on. Like don't, don't get emotional about it. Don't overthink it. Just have a, 
have a process and follow it and, and you'll be okay, generally speaking. So just be careful those vacation areas. Sometimes there's quite a few months where you just don't have people, um, you know, uh, renting it out because why would they? It's on a frozen lake and it's snow everywhere and it's freezing out, right? So if it's not skiing, then what are they doing there? So they're not doing anything is the answer. Okay, next question. Uh, do you think workplace culture is just as important for small companies as it is for big companies? I'm building a team and really want to start out on the right foot. Yeah, it's for sure just as important because, you know, with a large company, you can have good and bad departments. You can have good and bad managers. And, and it's sometimes you can, I, I've done this. You can navigate through a company when you're in a department or you're working for someone or you're in a, in a part of the company that has a really bad culture you can always try to move around to a different department. And usually with big companies, the company has a culture for sure, but the culture your the culture that affects you day to day is usually largely dictated and driven by who you report to, who is the manager that you're reporting to at that time, right? And so they can take a company with great culture and a bad manager can create a really bad environment for the you know handful of people that they manage. And so, it is just it's probably more important in a small company because if you're a company of five let's just say for example you have a small team of five people that it's not big enough for there to be a good culture a bad culture like this is a good manager this is a bad manager it's just it's just everybody's in the same department so to speak and so if you have a bad company culture right off the bat, then everybody you hire in is going to be indoctrinated. Because if you think the people that work for you are not talking to the new people and telling them what to expect and what they think about the job, you're crazy. So you have your first hire, if it's not a good culture with that first person, the second person probably will not be happy. The third person won't be happy. So you have to start from the beginning. It all starts from that first person. So the first couple of people you hire, you have to think about culture because if you don't, all you're doing is building a fire of bad culture that's going to burn out of control once you have five, six, seven, maybe 10 people in your business. Nobody's really happy. Everybody kind of thinks you're a jerk. They don't really like working there. They don't want to come to work. They're always coming to work just until they find a better job or something better comes along. That's that's what they're doing. They're just using your, your employment to wait for something better. And if you don't want people who are just waiting for something better, you have to create a good culture right off the bat. And, you know, I wrote a book and I have a whole chapter that's on culture. And that's because culture is important. It seems like one of those things where people roll their eyes and they go, well, I just want to get leads. I want to, I want to sign contracts. I want to flip houses. I want to sell houses. Like I just want revenue. Like I need revenue. Right. And that's in the beginning when it's just you, that's all you have to think about is revenue because you're a, a team of one, right? What culture is there when it's a team of one there, there really doesn't have to be, you can tolerate yourself. You have to this point in your life, but, you're just trying to think of revenue. So when you start bringing people in as an owner of a business, and I did this, I know you, you tend to think of, okay, now I could make this much revenue with me. Now I have three people, so I need more revenue, right? I just, I think more people means more revenue and it should, but more people means more attention to how they feel about coming to work, how they feel about you, how you treat them, how they view themselves inside of your company, how they view the company in general, right? If you do things in a way that's, maybe a little gray areas, a little unethical or just on the on the borderline of maybe it's unethical. It's a, it's a judgment call. And you start pushing people into those situations and show them that you're willing to sort of bend rules and be a little unethical and take advantage of people. 
you're going to create a culture where people don't feel good about themselves. They don't feel good about you. They don't feel good about the company, what you guys stand for, what you do. You have to have a set of principles, some values that you instill in your, not only just your company, but you demand from your people. And when you have the opportunity, you're at a crossroads where, and and we're all going to be there at some point. I, I know I have, and I know everybody listening who's running a business has, you come to a crossroads where you have situations where you can choose to make more money or do the right thing. We just find ourselves there as business owners from time to time. And if you always or even ever choose the path of money versus ethics and morals and doing what's right, you're immediately telling them that you're the kind of person that will screw people over. Maybe it's a stranger today, tomorrow it's them. So man, company culture is everything. If you plan on building a business that is bigger than just you and a business that can run while you're not there and you have people in place that you trust to make good decisions and do the right thing and and not try to, you know, do anything unethical, you have to it starts with you. And you know, I, you're you're your company's culture in the beginning, the, the company culture is you. And then as you bring people in more and more, if they have the right values that will grow throughout the company. Um, if you don't pay attention to it, it'll probably be a bad culture, right? Anything you don't pay attention to sort of wilts and dies, right? You buy a plant, you don't pay attention to it, you don't water it, you don't put it in the sun, it's going to wilt and die. And that your company will do the same thing if you don't pay attention and nurture it. So it's super important. I can't can't stress. Hopefully you can you can tell by the way I'm talking. I can't stress how important company culture is. You want people working for you and with you that would run through a brick wall for you that would do anything that when they get offered positions from other companies, they say no way, no how I would never leave this company. And we have that in my company. I know that we have people in our company because they've told me they have been some people have tried to poach them people have tried to get them to come over to their company from ours and not only do they say no they they tell me about it right so how great is that that you have people that are so happy to be working with you and so loyal and so you know just happy in what they're doing that they don't even consider going anywhere else and they and they tell you about it they don't keep it a secret because it's to them it, there's no way they're going to do it so company culture is everything because people are everything as you grow in scale. I, I just had this conversation with someone today as you grow in scale, the, the secret to growing and scaling profitably and, and, and giving you back some of your time so you don't have to do everything. The, the secret to that are, is people like people do that, not systems and processes, not automation, not apps, not software. People allow you to grow. And so if you don't have the right people, you don't treat them right. You can never grow and scale profitably. It just doesn't work. Okay, next one. Nick is on. Hey, man, what's going on? Uh, thanks for coming back. I appreciate it. Okay, question from Nick. What is your thoughts on doing deals in a smaller county next to a metro market versus doing deals in the metro market? I love it. Uh, I think it's very smart. I think a lot of metro markets are extremely competitive. The cost of doing deals like the cost per deal uh is just much higher and and so when you're starting out and i know you're not necessarily just starting out nick but when you're but if a person is just starting out i always think they should go to secondary markets first i think it's just absolutely the way to go there's no question about it but even as you're growing and scaling up i think those secondary markets are great because there's a little less competition 
And in this market, houses are selling like crazy everywhere. So it's just it's a no brainer to be in a secondary market. Now, if you grow and you scale to the point where you have a really large marketing budget and you can go in and make a dent and really take some market share away in a major metro. Great. You should you should definitely do that if that's if that's your kind of your growth plan that you want to get that big. But you can grow a real nice business in secondary markets. I mean, I live in Metro Detroit, right? So this is a metro market. Uh, we don't buy in Detroit. We we buy in the suburbs around Detroit, right? And there's varying levels of of competition in those in those suburbs. But we've also branched out outside of the metro area, and we're doing deals there because there's not as many investors. It's just the cost of doing a deal out there, the cost of getting a deal is so much better than in the busy metros. So I think those secondary markets in counties next to the metros, fantastic. Just be careful that you're not going into areas that that don't have a history of strong sales. And and sometimes rural areas that that we kind of avoid rural areas in all fairness to when we go out in those secondary markets. We're not deep into the country. We're not we're not anywhere where the next house is 5 miles away. We don't do that. Very hard to comp every house is a little bit unique i'm just not comfortable personally doing that we still want to be in neighborhoods in subdivisions on streets that have multiple houses so that we can comp you know as long as you can comp and you can show you you can prove to yourself or prove to an investor that you know what your house will sell for at the end of the day when you're done renovating it or when you're going to rent it or whatever you're going to do is you need comps and it's very difficult in rural areas but as far as outside of the metros, absolutely. It's such a smart thing to do. I think most people should start there and maybe even stay there because, you know, outside of Metro Detroit, you could run them. You could definitely have a million dollar business easily outside of Metro Detroit. And I suspect most metro markets, the counties just on the border of that metro area. Same thing. You could make tons of money out there and it's less competitive in most cases. So super smart. A really good idea. I definitely endorse that. Okay, next question. Can you describe your dispositions process and what you look for personally wise in a dispo manager? I'll start with the dispo manager. The dispo manager, that position, it is a sales position technically. It's sales. But when you think about sales, that is way more of an acquisitions person. So in our business, when we're going and talking to homeowners, talking to sellers and buying their homes, that's acquisitions. And so that that's more of a traditional sales model. You're going in, you're creating rapport, you're trying to figure out what their pain points are, you're making connection, you want them to like you and you want to really understand what their issues are. And then find a way to solve their problem through real estate, right? That's what we do on the front end. And that's that's traditional sales, right? You need a good bedside manner, so to speak. You need to be a people person. You need to be able to talk and empathize and truly care and find solutions. That's, that's front end. Dispo is not like that. When you're a dispositions manager and you're selling a contract to an investor, you do not have to sell them on a house you know, that they need to buy a house and how great of an idea it is to buy houses and, and renovate them. They already know that they, they get it. They're there, right? It's it front end. It's like B2C. It's it's you're you're selling to consumer and the dispo side. It's B2B. You're selling to another business. And so the minute the phone rings and your dispo manager answers it, 
they're in a negotiation. They're, they are already negotiating before they say hello, because the first thing that person on the other line is going to say is, hey, is 123 Elm Street still available? Yes, it is. Can you tell me more about it? You tell them a little bit about it. I see you're asking $100,000. Is that the best you can do? Like It's a negotiation. The minute they start talking to you, they're trying to figure out if they can get the house for less than what you're asking for. So a dispo person needs to be a good negotiator. They don't have to necessarily have a lot of empathy or be even necessarily a huge people person, in my opinion. They have to be a good negotiator. What happens to dispo managers is they get calls from investors all day. And a lot of those investors will steamroll the heck out of you if you're not strong as a dispo person. If you don't know what you're talking about, if you don't know the business, if you're not confident in yourself and what you're doing, they will steamroll you and try to get you to lower your price uh, basically through bullying. Honestly, it's just a form of bullying. So your dispo manager better be able to stand up to aggressive investors who have a lot of experience and they know what they're talking about and they're going to tell you how you don't know what you're talking about and if you buckle in those situations you shouldn't be a dispo manager so it has to be someone strong preferably someone who's really good at negotiating that that's that's my opinion um you know i always tell people like someone who negotiates um union contracts would be a really good dispo person because they're used to intense you know confrontational negotiation and that's really what it ends up being you know unfortunately that's what it ends up being sometimes and so that that's what i would say now my dispo process <clears throat> When we get a contract from a seller, it, it goes from acquisitions into our dispositions uh, department. Uh, they send it to the title company, the, the contract, the dispo person sends the, can, uh, the contract to the title company, and then they immediately start marketing that property out. And by marketing it out, I mean using email marketing to send it out to our list of buyers who've already identified themselves and said, we want to buy houses from you. We're going to flip them. We're going to use them as rentals, short-term rentals, long-term rentals, whatever they're doing. But they've identified and they've opted into our email list. And so we send them an email that says, here's the property, gives them all the uh, information about it, the address, pictures, all of the details about the house. We send that out, for example, at 8 a.m. on a Monday. Okay. At 4 p.m. on Tuesday, the next day, just at the opposite time of the day, instead of at 8 a.m. at 4 p.m., we send out the exact same email to the exact same people with no changes. And the reason we do that is in the past, we would send them out at, let's just say, 8 a.m. in the morning. We'd send out the email. And then two or three days later, we would send it out with a reduced price. If we didn't get the price we wanted, we'd reduce it. And we kept getting investors calling us saying, hey, I see that you reduced the price. I never saw it when it came out originally. Like I would have paid whatever you were asking originally, but hey, since you lowered it, like I'll pay that. And it, that happens only a few times before you go, why don't we send these out more at the same price and make sure that we're capturing everybody and they're seeing it the first time. So we send it out day one in the morning, day two in the afternoon, making sure that we're catching everybody. We also, the first time we send the mail out, we text blast everybody on our list. So everyone gets not only an email, they get a text, right? If you don't see your emails, almost everyone sees texts. And so we send them out as a text. And then we, we negotiate, we talk, we have showings with people who have responded. If we don't get the price we want, we lower the price and we try to get more people in there to take a look at it and then eventually we either sell it to the best offer the, you know the highest bidder or we buy it ourselves 
and maybe we flip it ourselves, or we hold it as a rental or whatever we're going to do. Or sometimes, a lot of times, actually, if we don't get the price we want, we put it on the MLS. As a wholesaler, you can put properties on the MLS, even though all you have is a contract to buy. Okay, That's a whole different discussion. We don't nearly have enough time to talk about how you do that, but you can do it. So we put it on the MLS and we get a, we get really high offers when we go on the MLS, as you can imagine, because instead of having, you know, a handful, three or four thousand people getting my personal email, we're getting out to, you know, tens of thousands of people that are looking at the MLS. So that's how we do the dispo process. Um, you know, we have a whole PDF that we send to our buyers about what we expect from them and what they can expect from us over the next several days. And we try to close within a few weeks and move on to the next one. It's, it's high, it's high velocity. It's speed. Everything in a wholesaling company should be about speed. You need to get contracts fast. You need to get them sold fast. You need to get the closing table fast, get the money in your bank account fast, rinse and repeat. That's, that's wholesaling. Okay. Um, Becca Shea, what's Becca Shea doing on here? All right, Becca, let's see what you got for me. Can you tell me how much you're spending on marketing to get each contract? Becca, you're always... Didn't I give you this information like a year ago, like in great detail? Um, I would have to look to have really good numbers. But here's here's what I can tell you. We are doing... Um, a couple of things to get deals now. We're not doing direct mail very much anymore either. So that's really negligible. We're doing PPC. Our PPC, we're at about $3,500 to get a deal. And we're doing radio ads now, pretty high volume actually. It's becoming a bigger and bigger marketing channel for us. We're doing radio ads and I believe radio ads are at about 4,500 right now. So we're ramping that up. We're going to new stations and we're figuring things out, but we're at about $4,500 per deal on radio, about 3,500 per deal on uh, PPC. And we stopped doing cold calling because it uh, well, a lot of reasons. We were working with a company that went out of business. So that was one. <laughs> we didn't restart it yet. Um, and it was doing okay. It wasn't great. I think we were around forty-five to 5000 with um with cold calling. Uh, and it was starting to produce... It, it, it was declining. The, the production was going down. When we first started, it was doing pretty well. We got a couple deals right off the bat. And then it seemed like the effectiveness was dwindling. It could be not a coincidence because the company went out of business about a year in. And so maybe they were less committed. I don't know. So I think we're going to go back to cold calling at some point and, and we're going to start doing direct mail on a, on a larger scale um, starting in April, probably. So we've got some new strategies we're thinking about doing and some new um, exit strategies. And so we're going to go back to direct mail. We just stopped because, well, COVID stopped us because it stopped working. But secondarily, uh, we were realizing uh, the same or more profits but we were spending less on marketing because direct mail was becoming less and less effective over the years too. And we were we were just pumping more money into it to try to get it where we want it to be. And at the end of the day, we were realizing the manpower it took to deal with the incoming calls, the marketing itself, and what we were actually getting out of it. When we stopped, like we didn't see a drop off in net profits. And so we didn't go back to it. Right. We've been slow to go back to it because it's been less work not doing direct mail. But we're going to go back into it because I think it's time now. I think we're we're well past the covid problem uh, in terms of the mail. And so we're going to go back to it this year, next month specifically. So I can give you better information on that. Hope that works. I know you're going to follow up more on the um, on the radio. I, I imagine you're going to ask me more about that, but I, I can't do it tonight. But I'll see you in a few weeks and we can talk about it. All right. 
Uh, last question. It, it should be a fairly quick one, and then that's going to probably be it for tonight. What is an investing mistake you made that you want to make sure no one else does? The biggest investing mistake I made, I did two things really, really wrong, and it, and it cost me a lot of money. The first thing I did wrong was we had a property under contract. We had a buyer in place to buy it. And at and it was it was a type of property where we couldn't show it a lot. We could only show it once. The the people who owned the property lived there when when we were going through the buying process and they had a daughter with special needs and they did not want strangers coming through their house. They didn't want to disturb her. And so we had one showing and we had one buyer who was willing to buy. And literally the day before closing, he backed out. He just he said he's not going to close. And so instead of us canceling the contract or maybe asking the sellers if we could get a little bit of an extension because of our buyer, I jumped in and said, we'll buy it. Like we had the funding to do it. We had the funding behind us to do it, the investors. And so I bought it, even though I didn't really feel comfortable with the numbers. There were some red flags on this property. Um, specifically, it was on a main road. It had a pool that was in horrible condition and a couple other things. But I just I didn't want to lose the deal. And I thought I have the money. I can do it. And I and I did it. I bought it. So that was one mistake. Um, not taking more time, like rushing into it. The second mistake was I it needed to be renovated. And so we were going to renovate it. But instead of me heading up the renovation, someone who had done you know over 100 flips at that point, I delegated it to somebody who had never run a flip before in their life and had no idea what they were doing. And I kind of threw them to the wolves because in my view at the time, it's common sense. It's easy. It's just babysitting contractor. It's not that hard, right? Anyone could do it. And what I thought of as common sense was not common sense because I had done it a hundred times. So it seemed like it was obvious to me, but it wasn't obvious. And I didn't, I didn't mentor and coach the person through the process. Like I should have, I gave them a checkbook and said, get it done basically. And we lost a ton of money. Like we lost over a hundred thousand dollars on one deal because we were chasing the market. We renovated it a little bit, didn't do a great job. We showed it on the MLS, no offers, uh, took it off the MLS, did more work to it, put it back on the MLS, took it off, put it on, took it off, put it on. And this was an expensive house. This house was like a $300,000 house when we bought it, 350, I think. And so the holding costs were astronomical. The work that was being done was subpar. We had contractors that came in, they got paid, they left, they didn't do the work, they took the money, we couldn't find them. Like a million things went wrong and we ended up losing tons and tons of money. So what I would say I don't want people to do is don't buy properties without doing your due diligence and making sure all the numbers make sense. Don't ignore red flags and don't uh, don't renovate a property or don't have someone renovate a property who doesn't know what they're doing without helping them. Right. And so tons of mistakes, learned a lot of lessons there, it, you know, kind of was a good ego check. But we can't let because at that point, I had never lost money on a deal in my entire life. And so it felt easy to me until like it was a perfect storm of everything going wrong. And then it, suddenly something that had never happened was happening. And it was like this slow car wreck that I could sort of at some point I could see what was happening and it was impossible to turn around quickly. And so it was just a bad deal. And and I don't want people to do that. Just know your numbers. We talked about the buy box at the beginning of this beginning of this call. You know your buy box, like know what you want. What does it look like that you want to buy and stay within that parameter 
so that you don't make mistakes. I, I was just, I went way outside that parameter and bought a house that made no sense to me at all. And uh, that's what happens. And so you, in real estate like this, flipping houses, you really shouldn't lose money. If you're really disciplined with your upfront numbers and you do your due diligence and you pay attention to the numbers, like losing money is really actually hard to do. But I, I made every mistake and I lost money and it time killed me too, right? We held on to this thing for like a year and a half and the holding costs were just astronomical. We were hemorrhaging every single month and on top of contractors stealing money and, and all the other things. So anyways, just be careful with your numbers up front and you should be fine in the end. So, all right, guys, that's it for this week. I appreciate you being here. Um, everybody, Nick and Becca, I can't believe Becca was on, but that's awesome. That's cool. Um, we'll see you guys next week. Same time, 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. And uh, I'll be here to answer your questions. Send me send me emails during the week. If you want to ask and you can't log on for whatever reason, send emails to Mike at JustStartRealEstate.com or you can DM me on Facebook, Instagram, wherever you are. Ask me questions. We'll get them answered here. And until then, I'll see you guys next week. All right. I hope you enjoyed that. Remember, I do these Q&As live on Facebook on Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. I hope you enjoyed this. Tune in next week for another installment of live Q&As answering your questions. Okay. Until next time.